Uh, The Bible reading comes from Daniel chapter 1, and we're reading the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favour and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. 
For those of you, uh, I'm Matt, I'm uh, the pastor here, and it is my pleasure to be beginning a uh, 12 or even more week journey in the book of Daniel. It'll be helpful to have Daniel open in front of you. And a big title for this series is Empire versus Kingdom. Empire of the world, empires of the world, and the kingdom of God. And today we're doing two things in the sermon. Uh, we are looking at chapter one, but we're also having a an introduction to the book itself. Uh, and so we'll try and do both well in our time uh, and yet, God willing, we achieve that task. And I've done something a little unusual this morning. I've got a printout for you. I'm sure people are up here. Uh, unfortunately, I failed to get a high enough definition uh, picture of book either. So you really can't work out the timeline. Um, that's okay. That will become more relevant in the coming weeks and I'll make sure that I, rather than just Google imaging, I pay for an image that you can actually see. That map, you can, you can see Jerusalem there, I think, and you can also see Babylon uh, and the big Babylonia, even with my eyesight, I can read that. So that will become relevant uh, a little later on, uh, but the timeline will uh, avoid that this morning. And if you'd like to take notes, here's the two points this morning. Uh, point number one, Divine drama, colon, the cosmic clash. You may choose to use whatever form of punctuation. Maybe an M dash at that point. Divine drama, the cosmic clash was point one. Point two is identity, neither assimilation nor isolation. Identity, neither assimilation nor isolation. And I'll explain those words if you're not sure what they are. So, point one, divine drama, the cosmic clash... Uh, The book of Daniel uh, takes place in the 6th century BC. That's over two and a half thousand years ago from here in Perth. Uh, And the the context geographically is uh, the city of Babylon in the region of Babylon. And again, you'll see on the map, you'll see Jerusalem where the people are taken from. This is an exile scene. This is when God's people are ripped out of their homeland in Jerusalem and then carted some 1,500 kilometres by foot to uh, the city of Babylon. Except God's people weren't taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in one go. They were taken in three separate um, tranches or three separate occasions. And this is the first occasion. Uh, This is where the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, takes the the cream of the crop, the kind of the tippy-top of Jerusalem are taken And I want us to turn to two kings. If you've got a Bible, um, it'll be good to look it up in the index or just to go back there if you know where it is. Two Kings chapter 24. Kings is one of the few um, history books of the Bible. Well, there's a number of them actually. Uh, And Two Kings 24 is the um, historical frame of reference for this scene. It kind of colours the picture of what's happening in Daniel verses 1 to 3. This is the background. So 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 to 14. At that time, the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, advanced on Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And Nebuchadnezzar himself came up to the city while his officers were besieging it. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles and his officials all surrendered to him. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin as prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed the treasures from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and cut open the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried all Jerusalem into exile. 
all the officers and fighting men, all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. So Nebuchadnezzar takes the pick of the crop, the influencers, those that people aspire to be in Israel, and deported them along with Daniel. It was probably about 15 at the time, uh, all 1,500 kilometres by foot to Babylon. And here's the thing we learn about uh, Daniel. He's the guy, if Daniel was at your high school, he's the guy that everyone would have loved to hate. He was beautiful, he was brilliantly smart, wise beyond his years, and just really nice to boot. But he would not have looked so beautiful after his trip to Babylon. Remember, that's 1,500 kilometres of a journey, not obviously by car, not by camel, but by foot, carrying all that you own on your back, traversing desert and mountain. Four months it probably would have taken. Four months of reflecting on your country's defeat. Four months of reflecting potentially on lost loved ones in the fight. Four months of contemplating moving from nobility to slavery. The journey would have been harrowing and demoralising for Israel. Once a mighty nation, now humbled, crippled, a shell of its former self. But then as you approach Babylon, your emotions get complicated. Because the sight that greets you on that road into Babylon is beyond your wildest dreams. The city of Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built upon the banks of the mighty Euphrates River. And it was magnificent to look at. It was bigger in every single dimension to Jerusalem where Daniel and his people were from. Vastly bigger. It would have been a bit like, imagine you grew up in Bunbury. Nothing against Bunbury, it's a lovely town. But imagine you grow up in Bunbury and someone blindfolds you and flies you to Tokyo or to Beijing or London or New York and, and you had never had a photo of another city. You thought Bunbury was the big smoke, the jewel in the crown of Australia. And then your sight hits the skyscrapers of New York. And the city would have been a buzz teeming with life, heaving and pulsating with vitality and colour and the scents and the sounds of over 200,000 people from all around the world. People moved there as slaves like you or people who have sought fame and fortune at the capital of the known world. And Daniel would know that as he, as he walks in there with all his mixed feelings, he would also know that this nation with all its glory and all its power that had dominated him was about to subject him to its agenda. You see, your job if you were taken by Babylon is you would be conscripted into the national pastime of world domination. Stripped of your national identity and you would become a tool of the empire. And it would be very hard if you were in Daniel's situation not to be overawed at that prospect. 
Not to be wowed at Babylon as you walk into its gates and you think, I'm now a part of that city. Now that's a city. In fact, so influential has Babylon been, not just on the ancient world, but on our world, that you and I, you might not know it, but you and I bear the marks of Babylon on our hands, our wrists, our left wrist most likely. The whole concept of timekeeping came from ancient Babylon. 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, comes from their discovery that 60 was divisible by quite a number of integers and formed a really good base for doing mathematical calculations. They were incredibly advanced in mathematics and engineering and hydraulics and cooling. They had more libraries than any other city. They had another wonder of the ancient world that you might know of, the hanging um, gardens of Babylon. Now, slight side note, it's kind of debated in the literature whether or not it actually existed. Um, But I'm going with it existing, A, because it makes my point better, and B, I tend to believe people who died thousands of years ago more than modern people do. And you see, the Babylonians, like a New Yorker or like perhaps an annoying Sydney-sider, are proud of their city. You see, like like Sydney-siders, they saw it as paradise. Like Sydney-siders, they saw it as the centre of the known world. Probably a bit harsh, but they even went beyond the New Yorker or the Sydney cider because they saw it like elevated, transcendent in meaning to not just the centre of the world, but the centre of the universe. This was the place where cosmic harmony had been achieved, where their god of gods, Marduk or Bel, he has two names, Marduk or Bel, had defeated the forces of chaos. In fact, ancient Babylon's most striking feature is nothing that I've mentioned so far. It's its temples. It had, according to archaeologists, 1170 temples in the city centre. There was the Etemenki, which was the house of the foundation of the world. There was the ziggurat that reached 100 metres into the sky, probably the the highest building that had ever been built. And then the most striking of all, as you entered into Babylon, was the Ishtar Gate. It was constructed of glazed cobalt blue bricks. It It had bulls and dragons and lions on it. It's an amazing sight to see. You can go to Germany today. Well, you can't because of COVID, but if you could, you could go to Germany today to the National Museum and you would see it rebuilt there. And the gate of Ishtar was named after Ishtar and she was the goddess of war and of sex. And she wasn't a lonely god. A, a gentleman by the name of George Rue, a historian, in his book, Ancient Iraq... And that might just help you to know that Iraq today, that's, that's Babylon, that's what we're talking about. He claims that ancient Babylon, more than any other civilization to date, was permeated by its belief in the gods. There's a reason why there was 1197 temples 
in the city. Every institution, every aspect of life, from motherhood to mathematics, from history to horticulture, from love to linguistics to long division, was attached to the power of the gods. In fact, the word Babel, the very word means gateway to heaven. And that's why when you read Daniel, just like you know, Daniel's kind of split into two, it's 12 chapters. The first six chapters are the kind of history, the court drama, what happens as Daniel kind of walks the halls and corridors of power in Babylon and then later, as we'll see, in Persia or the Persian kingdom. And in those first six chapters, the next six, seven to twelve, are kind of strange visions, and we'll have fun with those later on. The first six of the history, on every single page, you'll find mention of Babylon's gods. In fact, turn over a leaf in Daniel and you'll find mention of their gods. Often not by name, in fact, never by name, just by reference to their gods. But you'll find them everywhere. And in the Babylonian mind, they had a kind of supreme god, as I mentioned before, his name was Marduk or Bel. And he boasted among all the gods to be the most powerful, the most mighty. And think about that claim for a moment, because as you walked through the Ishtar Gate, as you were confronted by the, the power, the majesty, the grandeur of this amazing city, as a lowly Israelite going to Babylon, seeing a culture far more advanced and powerful, temples touching the skies, wealth behind dreams, a military force unrivaled in the ancient world, there would have been a temptation to believe the hype. To actually think that maybe Marduk was the one in control. After all, his people had conquered the world, had they not? And the Babylonians believed this. And this conviction, this belief is kind of underlined, it's punctuated, it's explained by verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. You see, nothing says my God is bigger and better than your God by stealing all their God's toys and taking them to your own God's temple. That's like an ultimate power move. But if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know that this is a power move that never pays off in the long run. It never pans out for a God to steal Israel's God, Yahweh, his possessions. And if you want a history lesson that, read 1 Samuel and ask the headless, armless Philistine God, Dagon, how it went for him. In fact, you can think of these temple objects, the, the gold and the silver of the temple, I think it's actually the gold of the temple, you can think of it like a depth charge. It's a bomb that gets dropped and it sinks and it sinks to the bottom and it sits under the foundations of the empire of Babylon. It sits there ticking like a time bomb. And then in chapter 6, which we'll get to in six weeks, this time bomb blows up. 
The very thing they stole to flaunt the power and authority of Babylon becomes the context and the means by which it gets destroyed. Uh, But we don't actually need to wait to chapter 6 because the writing on the wall is there in chapter 1 verse 21. Chapter 1 verse 21, and Daniel remained there until the first year of Cyrus. Now, don't make the mistake I used to make of thinking, oh, that's just mentioning another Babylonian king. Because he's not. He's not a Babylonian king. He's a Babylonian crusher. You see, Cyrus the Great wasn't Babylonian. He was Persian. And in 539, so about 60 years from our current scene of the exile, in 539, he destroys the Babylonian army. Unthinkable at 605 when this takes place. Unthinkable, but within half a century, Babylonian Babylon is crushed. For all its powers and all its pomp, Babylon is as fragile as a frangipani. But we don't even need to wait to verse 21 because the fate of Babylon is sealed in verse 2. Verse 2, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. See, Nebuchadnezzar and his men had thought that it was Marduk's doing, that it was their God that conquered. But actually it was part of Israel's God's plan. You see, from the first two verses, the curtain of reality is kind of peeled back in Daniel. And you'll see that this actually isn't a contest between rival deities. No, Israel is God. Yahweh, he is the ancient of days, the mighty one. He's the one in the driver's seat. The 1100 gods of Babylon are, are nothing. And as we'll see later in the book of Daniel, but if you know your Old Testament, you, you might know this already. The whole reason why this exile took place was it was God's punishment on his people Israel. Babylon was just the pawn on his board, the club in his hands. God, Yahweh, was in control. And Daniel knew this. In fact, it's this conviction of God's sovereignty, this rock-solid confidence in God's authority, that forms the bedrock of his life of faith. You see, in these chapters, which are filled with intrigue and adventure, you'll see Daniel and his friends stalk the corridors of power, and they rebuke the mighty, they refuse the tyrant, they rejoice in their suffering and their trials, because they know that it's Yahweh, not Marduk, who sits on the throne of the universe. And it's this conviction in their heart and in their marrow that breeds an amazing perspective on life. See, they they cultivate a way of seeing the world that looks beyond appearance, that sees beyond their slavery, beyond the fact that their little minnow, their little New Zealand of a nation has been conquered by Babylon's USA or China. 
See, it's beyond the fact that they're outflanked, outmatched, outnumbered, outcast, and then cast at one point into a den of lions to be consumed. Sees beyond all that and sees his God in control. And I want to say that perhaps at this point of time in Western history, more than any other, we need to cultivate that perspective among us as Christians. To be able to see beyond shrinking churches, deteriorating social standards, decaying moral foundations, and not get caught up in the angst and the worry and the wringing of hands. And like Daniel, be reminded that our God, not the God of money, the God of science, the God of celebrity, the God of tolerance and whatever else it might be that sits on the throne. Our God is in control. That's point one. Point two, neither assimilation nor isolation. Neither assimilation nor isolation. And I want you to imagine for a moment. I want you to imagine that you have just become the proud father or mother of a newborn boy. Let's call him Daniel, okay? He's about two months old. He still smells like heaven. And he's as cute as a button. You can't hide your radiant motherly or fatherly pride. And so one morning, you dress him up in his his two-piece onesie. Well, actually, onesie couldn't be two pieces, could it? A one-piece onesie. Looking glorious, and you put him in your pram and you drive a ride, uh, push him right around the suburb. And then you, you get stopped, which often happens if you've got a pram, because someone wants to take a sneak peek. And so you oblige and you show them, and after the person responds with all the right oohs and ahs and coos, saying, Yes, he looks so cute in his little denim onesie and his little kerchief, they ask you for his name. And so you say, Well, his name is Daniel. And they look at you and they say, no, it's not. And you say, sorry? Um, yeah, it's, it's Daniel. And they say, mm, it's not Daniel. Like, um, uh, I don't want to be rude, but, but it's really not. It's, it's actually, it's, it's Daniel. And they say, well, he looks more like a Noah to me. Yeah, I actually like the way Noah kind of comes off the tongue. Noah. You should call him Noah. In fact, we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to call him Noah now. Your son is not Daniel, it's Noah. <laughs> what, what, would you, what would you do? My guess is that you would kind of run with that pram as quickly as you could out of it. I mean, the audacity. They don't have the right to name your child. It's not their child. It's your, your child. You get to name them. And there's a principle here. It's this. He who owns names. She who owns names. You see, Daniel and his three friends, the four gifted, handsome and intelligent young men, the ones that were hand-picked to be trained for the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, they of course had names, didn't they? that their mums and dads gave them. And, and those names meant something. 
And here's what they mean. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. They're good kind of rock solid Hebrew names. But Nebuchadnezzar comes along, as it were, when they're in the pram and says, no, 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 no. They're not your names. See, Daniel, you've got a new name. It's it's Belteshazzar. And Belteshazzar means may Bel, which is, remember, their high god, or my Bel, may Bel protect his life. And Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which this one's kind of more debated, but it probably means Aku, which is another Babylonian god, Aku be exalted. And then Mishael, now here comes Mishael, which means who is what Aku is. Not who is what God, the God of Israel is, but who is what Aku is. And Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. And there's more than just claiming new ownership. I now own you. But also, I now am reshaping your identity. You now are Babylonians. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, forget who you were. You are now Babylonians. And that means you worship our gods. See, it's not just about conforming, although it is that. It's about assimilation, becoming one with the Babylonian people, annihilating their old selves and being remade in the image of Babylon to become like one of us, they say. And that pressure to conform, to assimilate, at the edge of the sword, at the edge of the teeth of the lion would have been incredible for Daniel and his friends. And in a way, it's not the same, I know, but in a way we feel that kind of, kind of pressure today, don't we? And there's a feeling that sometimes I feel, I don't know whether you feel it, that it would be so much easier just to believe what everyone else believed. To join the right side of history, as it's called. To stop saying no to all the progressive trends and to just start saying yes to what society delivers up. I mean, wouldn't it just be just a relief to be normal again? To be able to nod your head with everyone else around the water cooler. To be able to approve of their drunken antics. To laugh at the dirty joke. To agree with the sneaky cash job on the side. To inflate your chargeable hours. To join in the gossip session. What it would be not to have to fight within your soul almost every single day at work. Whether or not you speak up, vocalise your disagreement... Or crawl back into your shell and die a little more. It's so easy just to be who they are. 
Daniel, more than anyone, knows that pressure. But he doesn't buckle, does he, in this chapter or, or any other chapter. You see, he draws a line in the sands beyond which he will go no further. And he draws the line of the king's food. He says, I will not eat of the king's table. But I want us to note, he draws the line at a kind of strange place, I think. He doesn't draw the line where you or I or others in our atmosphere and in our world are tempted to draw the line. What do I mean? Well, I mean, there's some people that see the pressure, the decadence and the depravity of the world around us. And they're plain to see. And they draw a big, thick, fat line right in front of them. And they retreat 5,000 miles behind them, heading into the hills, into the country, into holy huddles, into compounds, communes, exclusive communities. Or even living amongst us, but never being touched by a non-Christian at any point. And it's tempting to do that. Do that and do that well, and the pressure to conform is off. At least to conform out there. But I want to say, I find it incredibly hard to square that with what the Bible says living as a Christian should be like. I mean, how do you bless the world? How do you evangelise? How do you win a world over with love and good deeds if you flee from it? So if you genuinely think that what you hold true is universally true, that there is a God in heaven who is the judge, and the only way to escape that judgment is by God's grace through Jesus, then you're leaving a world going to hell in a handbag just to make your life more comfortable, more secure. You're condemning a dying world. And notice, I think, that might sound a little controversial to you, but, but I think that's what the Bible says time and time again. And notice Daniel, he doesn't retreat. You think of where you could have drawn the line. You could have said, hey, we've been conquered by Babylon, I'm not going to serve Babylon. And yet he goes to court and faithfully serves the pagan king. He serves him better than anyone else. You could say, all right, I'm coming here, I'm doing it, but I'm not going to like it, I'm not going to learn anything about your strange, pagan, idolatrous culture. And yet he learns their language, and he learns their literature, which if you know about any of the ancient Babylonian literature, is like 95% pagan mythology. And this isn't just reading Harry Potter, this is learning a false religion. See, he's not a fundamentalist in that, in that sense. He doesn't escape. He doesn't isolate. He integrates into the world. But he doesn't assimilate. Verse 8. David resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine and asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. He works out what would cross the line. And for him, it's this food. And he on pain of death, chooses not to step over that line. 
It does make you wonder why. Like, why is that where he draws the line? I mean, it does, to be fair, it does pan out pretty well for him, doesn't it? Verse 19, the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. They're the ones on that vegetable diet. And so they entered the king's service. The diet ended up helping, right? But he didn't know that. And so why does he say, I'm not going to have that food and that wine? Well, it says he doesn't want to defile himself with the royal food and wine. But it's actually not crystal clear what that word means. Because, again, if you know the Old Testament a bit, you might think, oh, this is kind of a clean, unclean thing. They're probably serving pig and carrion and crayfish and he can't eat that. Or the way that they're going to sacrifice it is not going to be kosher. But if so, the wrong word is used. There's a very clear word that Hebrew language would use there and it doesn't use that word. Or maybe we say it's because the food sacrificed to idols. And so he doesn't want to be partake of that. Okay, but it still doesn't really explain the why. And just in case you're, you're thinking that I'm going to reveal like, the answer, I don't, I don't have it, actually. <laughs> Sorry. Um, after building up the hype, I can't deliver. But let, let me give you my guess. And this isn't mine. Smarter people and more godly people have thought this. He refuses the meat and the wine because it comes from the king's table. And sharing someone's table in the ancient world was an act of fellowship and an act of intimacy. Think, think up the, the gospel. What does Jesus get in trouble to, with or, or about more than almost anything else? Is because not he, not talking with, but eating with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Who you share a meal with is incredibly important. And so. Maybe Daniel wants to put the line in the sand there and say, I'm not going to have that intimate fellowship with you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, I'm not 100% sure, but I know this, he does clearly draw a line, doesn't he? And there is something to be said for us adopting that. We have to do the same thing too at times, I think. And I, I can't give you hard, fast rules because it depends on personal circumstances. But here are some ways that those lines, I think, need to be drawn in our lives. Maybe it's the company you keep. You know that guy or those people are a bad influence and you so you have to be very careful around them. Maybe it's the places we go where that is a place where godliness goes to die. Maybe it's the shows we watch Websites we visit, games we play, budgets we put in place, restrictions we put ourselves under when we're dating or when we're drinking, the words that we refuse to use. As Christians, we do draw lines. And a a health check for this is, if you look at your life and compare it to your neighbours, your secular mate next door, and the distinction between your lives is only what happens Sunday morning. Then that, for me, is the sound of warning bells. If we can't isolate, we also don't want to assimilate. We have to draw boundary markers that we don't cross. But it's critical that I don't end the sermon here, just by how long it's going, and you might hope I will. I'm not going to end it here, because this could give you a wrong picture of what it means to be a Christian. 
Because what gives you, you, brother and sister in Christ, if you're a Christian today, what gives you your place in the world, what gives you your meaning and your identity is not the lines you draw. You see, if you do that, if you define yourself by what you don't do, if you define yourself over and against a world that does these things that you will never, ever do, if that's all it means, then you will become smug and you will become self-righteous and you will die on the inside. Daniel drew his line because he knew his identity was being an Israelite first and foremost. And so we draw our lines because we know it's not the lines and the boundaries that constitute us, but our identity is first and foremost found in Christ. You see, it's Christ's victory on the cross. It's his glory, his righteousness, his purity. That's the thing that actually defines us. How does this play out? Well, I think so often the temptation is to read the book of Daniel. And if you go to Kurong, you'll see this everywhere. And you read it as a guide to how you should live your life. See him as a mirror, how to reflect upon your own deeds and actions. And, And if all you do is read Daniel and compare and contrast... Unless you're deluded, the only outcome of that will be discouragement. He was an incredible man. And I don't know you, but I love you, and I need to say, you are likely not. He was the first and maybe the only human in history that was second in command over successive superpowers, one that conquered the other, and he wasn't a native of either of those lands. You and I are not as brave, courageous, intelligent, or as wise as Daniel was. Live the compare and contrast with Daniel, and you'll feel, you'll leave this sermon every Sunday morning feeling inadequate, and guilty that you haven't dared enough to be the Daniel. Now, what we're to do if we do this right as Christians is we're to look at Daniel as he reflects Christ. Christ, who was a thousand times more courageous, more intelligent, wiser and braver than Daniel. Christ, who didn't just stare down Babylon and Persia, but stood down death and Satan and Hades for us. Daniel is but a weak shadow, a shallow picture of the luminescent and furious glory that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, as we look at Christ, we see that his glory is reflected back to us as Christians. His wonder, his majesty, his power, his righteousness and authority, they are shared by us. Who are united to him by faith. As Paul says, as Christ Jesus, who was our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. All the treasures of God are hidden in Christ. 
And we are found hidden in him too. So as we pour over the pages of Daniel, as we see a vision of a man who is courageous and wonderful and powerful, each sermon of ours will be a failure. Bryce, Scott, myself and others, if we then don't see that glory reflected in the face of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, thank you for your servant Daniel. Thank you for his faithfulness, his courage, his bravery. And Father, thank you that we get a window into Christ through Daniel. That we see the integrity, the bravery, the courage, the might, the power, the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And know that that is ours for those who are found in him, who love and serve him. In Jesus' name. Amen.